welcome to the Swamp Flicks Podcast. My name is Brandon Leday. I am Allie. And I am Boomer. And we are three friends who meet on the internet to discuss movies. We also post reviews on SwampFlix.com, believe it or not. The last functional film blog in America. <laughs> Proud to serve. <laughs> we'll probably be the last podcast, too. What comes after this? I, I don't want anybody beaming their my voice directly into their brain. That just sounds dangerous. Prudish TikTok reviews. <laughs> yeah. complain about too many sex scenes in movies uh, mm. while doing little dances and pointing at graphics. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't wait for all of these hour-long podcasts to be chopped up into like 12 to 15 second segments for TikTok. Well, I won't bore y'all too much with the lead up to Mardi Gras stuff because y'all are currently living outside the city. But uh, that's where my brain is at. There is carnival happening outside of this house right now. I've so far only gone to two parades this year. I went to Crew de Vue, which I might be kind of done with. They're getting a little stale. But I also went to T-Rex. I was about to say, I got a tiny little zine from T-Rex. I received it. Are you familiar with T-Rex, Boomer? No, I don't think so. It's so good. It is the best Mardi Gras parade, and I forget it every time until I'm there watching them. It's like watching Nine Inch Nails in concert. I don't remember how much I love Nine Inch Nails until I'm watching them play. And I'm like, oh yeah, this band's great. But every time I'm at T-Rex, I'm like, everyone's in a great mood. It's in the quarter. It's a walking parade. And it's all handmade, handcrafted stuff. And the reason I want you to know about it is because it's shoebox floats. And everything's yeah. just scaled down and tiny. Yep. Oh, I'm so into that. It's amazing. Oh. Every year. They had a little Chris Owens float where she was like a Barbie doll on these little like leopard print bar stools as like a, you know, amazing. commemoration of her. And then there was a really elaborate Pee-wee's Playhouse float this year where Pee-wee was flying around Globy on his bicycle. So like as the little wheels on the float were moving, that would propel Pee-wee around the little circle. That's so cute. Yeah, and then there was some like good like local satire stuff about, you know, birds flying into transformers and knocking out Entergy's power grid, which happened yeah. earlier this year. I saw pictures of, of that stuff too, and I was like, that's great. Very funny. Also, uh Mardi Gras off to a very yakety sax uh momentum already this year. <laughs> uh there was a float that was decapitated by a live oak yesterday. Oh, I saw <laughs> I saw about that, yeah. Okay. And then also on Friday, uh, a confetti cannon uh, blew out a transformer and knocked out all the power. Oh, yeah, I saw that, too. Route. I saw a video about it. Yeah, we keep up. <laughs> Very funny stuff. <laughs> we keep so our finger good. on the pulse at home. Yeah, we do. That's the most New Orleans thing that could have ever happened. Yeah. Last time there was a full Mardi Gras in, like, 2020, there were things going wrong like this, but, like, it was people getting injured and yeah, dying. Yeah, I was going to say, there was a lot of death. It was terrible. Yeah. And then, you know, it culminated with us realizing COVID was everywhere, like, a couple weeks later. Uh, so, I don't know. This year's been more fun in its buffoonery so far. So, I'm in a good spirit, even though good. I haven't been doing that much. Well, how have y'all been outside of the Mardi Gras zone? Are y'all watching movies, enjoying life? Well, I mean, you know, I don't think it's a secret that we had a huge freeze <laughs> last week. Oh, yeah. Um, luckily... I never lost power, although people were like just two blocks over, just one block over, were losing power. So I was trapped and it was sort of a beautiful wonderland, but I don't, I don't want to, you know, spend too much pr time praising how beautiful it was that everything was covered in ice when so many people were experiencing abject misery. I'm not going to delight in that, even though I could. I mean, take your small delights in the face of abject misery, right? Like I... Yeah. I don't live in a place where necessarily the power goes out every time it ices over, but I hate 
it, except for the fact that it's beautiful. I only heard news coverage of Dallas freezing like that. I, I didn't hear Austin at all. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know what exactly, uh, you know, the the national news media covers what it covers, but we were all caught under the polar vortex. Oh, wow. So, like, I went out on Tuesday and, you know, uh, branches had started to, like, fall off of trees, you know, and it this year our outages were not caused by grid failures like they were a couple of years ago. This was purely the result of like just broken branches, just broken branches, transformers getting weighed down by the ice and falling off, branches taking out power lines. Not as funny as a confetti cannon. No, certainly not. I I watched several branches come down. I was walking down to the corner store to get some Hot Pockets because I I was just sick of eating soup. I don't (laughs) like to turn my heat on when it gets cold. I just make soup. I just make a different pot of soup every day and just let that heat my home it's very tree of wooden clogs of me yeah that really is but there was a, a tree came down in front of me and i was like mm, maybe i maybe you shouldn't be out <laughs> um but yeah and there was a moment on tuesday when i you know i was hearing branches falling around the neighborhood because they crack and you hear the ice cracking and the tree branches cracking i was like mm, i'm parked under our tree i should probably go move my car and my battery had died in the cold so I was like, well, I guess it's in God's hands now. Oh, no. But everything turned out fine. By Saturday, enough had melted that the tree workers came around and cut down all of the tree limbs that were just loose and dangling. And my neighbor jumped me off so I could move my car out of the way. But yeah, I, I, I'm good. You know, just reporting from the front of climate change, letting you know it sucks. <laughs> but I managed to stay afloat. And that's that. Uh, Allie, how are uh, how are you, and what have you been watching? I'm fine. I was left to my own devices this past week, and for the first I don't know four or five days, I kind of just reverted back to like when Allie was like a single person, Allie, and I ate way too healthy, and I cleaned weird things, and hung out with cats, and talked to myself too much. But then I went back to eating junk food and watching a bunch of true crime TV. Um, So that's what I watched this week. I watched Ebb of Death all the way through, which is like a Hulu true crime thing that they've got going on about like people on the internet helping solve crimes, which was really funny to me. Because I feel like it's always just like these nerds on Reddit that are like, we're going to solve this crime. And they threw out, they throw out all these crazy Theories. I have a movie that's currently in theaters that's like about that. Oh, that I watched this week. <laughs> good. But this was not just like people on Reddit. This was like people from like specific like missing people's like databases that have been like voluntarily put together and stuff. I don't know. I always think it's interesting to have like actual things put together by like non state entities helping solve crimes instead of just like cops being like yeah and then we got him and locked him up for good and it's like i don't uh." so that was one notable one that i i watched what's the name of that show web of death (laughs) (laughs) Um, so it's it's not hard to like miss i also did a lot of like having uh, a rewatch of 30 rock going on in the background because not all of it has aged well, but it's still very rewatchable. Yeah, I agree. There's still some parts that are just so, so funny. I did see someone point out um, that two news items from the past week 
were referenced in the same 30 Rock joke, or like foretold. The episode where Jerry Seinfeld is mad that he's going to be inserted into um, AI television. Yeah. Uh, he gets inserted into MILF Island. Yeah, MILF Island. Seinfeld vision. So yeah, there's like an AI uh, Seinfeld channel on Twitch that had like a moment in the news the past week. And also MILF Manor uh, is basically a 30 Rock joke come to life at the same time. They had both of those points in one joke. Yeah. God help us if TLC ever develops Bitch Hunter. <laughs> i'm praying for the bitches already yeah <laughs> boomer i know you've talked about how you are but what have you been watching well uh i'm still even though it has extended into the year of our lord 2023 uh during the freeze i had a friend come over so he could like charge his phone and charge his like backup battery and we watched the 2001 coen brothers picture the man who wasn't there have either of you ever seen this one? I feel like I rented that from Blockbuster when I was like 13 or 14 and just got nothing out of it. Yeah. But it was just the wrong age to watch it, so I don't know. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, maybe my age too. I was going <laughs> to say, I, if I've seen it, I forgot it. So it's not my least favorite of the ones that I have watched. I still think it's better than uh, Hudsucker Proxy, which I think was... Uh, yeah, I've been watching a lot of Siskel and Ebert lately, and they always bring up this uh, filmmaker's definition of what a great movie is, which is like three great scenes and no bad scenes. And the thing about Hudsucker Proxy is that there are like four great scenes and like three awful scenes. I don't know. It, it slips down in my memory. Uh, the Man Who Wasn't There, it's shot in black and white. It's set in the 50s. It stars Billy Bob Thornton as this sort of strong, silent type dude who... You know, he's a barber. His wife is Frances McDormand. She's having an affair with her boss, who is uh, Tony Soprano. And as with every Coen Brothers movie, there's a heist. There's a there's someone demanding money from someone else. So in this one, it's that he pretends to be able. I mean, he blackmails his wife's boss with the threat to tell himself, you know, anonymously that his wife is having an affair with Tony Soprano, and so he gets this money to use it to invest in a dry cleaning business but then the person who uh, he gave the money to disappears and he's out of the money and then there's this whole thing where the boss anyway it's a noir it's a great one the rest of the cast there's a very young scarlett johansson she's like 16 in this movie and it traces all the way from you know his decision to uh, blackmail his wife's boss all the way up until like her trial and then his trial. And it's really, it's not as funny as they usually are. It feels more like one of their prolonged experiments in like making a film noir in black and white set in the fifties to make it look like it was made in the fifties. So it's one of their more like cerebral experimental projects and whether or not that works for everyone is going to be real hit or miss. I didn't, really have a good time watching it but every time i think about it i remember things that i really enjoyed so it's a film that maybe when you're watching it is less than the sum of its parts but as you sort of reflect on it over time it becomes better in your mind what else would you put in that category because like the first thing that comes to mind is one of them made that Macbeth adaptation last year i haven't that seen it like yet. a formal experiment but uh, I can't think of any others that are like just that. I guess maybe the remake of Lady Killers. Yeah, <laughs> and you know, No Country bad. for Old Men, I think, 
I feel like that one is is a very cerebral exercise as well. It's also a great movie, but it's it a very feels, entertaining film too. Yeah, yeah <laughs> it's but it it feels very much like it was designed almost in a petri dish in some ways to be like, okay, we want to use this and this and this. Um, and I would also say maybe Ballad of Buster Scruggs also falls under that like umbrella. Uh, yeah, yeah. And then I went to the movie theaters Friday night and I saw Magic Mike's Last Dance and I immediately texted Brandon to ask if he minded if I went ahead and did coverage on this one because I know how much you love Magic Mike XXL. Great film. Like, it comes up a lot, you know, like <laughs> I, I, for some reason, it's at the forefront of my mind. Like before I think of Magic Mike, like when I think Magic Mike, it's not the first thing I think of is Channing Tatum and his abs. The first thing I think of is <laughs> Brandon loved Magic Mike XXL. I was looking back at our like best of the 2010s list that we did. And uh-huh. uh, I feel like a coward that that movie was not on there because I think about it and talk about it all the time. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know what I was thinking. Well, we'll we'll have time for reevaluation when we do the, you know, our list of the 500 greatest movies up to 2050, <laughs> you know, whenever we're doing that, because we'll be doing that. They'll be in six to eight second TikToks that oh, yeah. get beamed directly into people's cortexes. Anyway, so it's not a secret anymore, I guess, that I live in a place with Alamo draft houses. And of course, the general, the, the biggest Alamo draft house element of what they do is that they you are not allowed to talk or text or arrive late like that's their whole deal um however every once in a while they will put out a movie that requires a little bit of audience interaction and so what they'll do is they'll hold what they call rowdy screenings so i went to a rowdy screening of magic mike's last dance on friday night where we were in call encouraged to hoot holler woo all of those things. And in fact, we were given fake dollar bills with abs on them and uh, the unicorn that plays, <laughs> a, you know, that's that's sort of referred to in the movie. So that during the last dance, we could throw the money into the air whenever our favorite dancer did their little bit in the big ensemble number at the end. However, unfortunately, I think the person who was supposed to explain to us that when the cats pop up and the word intermission appears, that's supposed to let us know that the last dance is coming up. I don't think anybody in the theater realized that. Certainly no one sitting in front of me. So there was like a like a five second shot of, of kittens in a basket that said intermission. And then the last dance went on. But I didn't realize that was going to be the last dance. So I still have my dollar bills. My <laughs> apologies to Channing Tatum. And to all of the nameless dancers in this movie, which is great. That's part of like the wish fulfillment of it all. You don't have to learn anybody's names in this movie. You just see their faces. You just see their chests. You watch them bump and grind. And then you get to leave that theater without having to have like learned a name, you know, and, and had that push out the name of like a childhood classmate. That's antithetical to uh, XXL, where it's all about the boys getting to know each other and getting to know themselves, you know? Right. Yeah. And I, I get that. And as I was watching it, I was like, I, I did turn to my my friend that I was with and I was like, how is this the best one? And I think that XXL fulfills something very specific and different from Last Dance. And Last Dance connected with me in the way that XXL connected with you. The romance plot in this one is razor thin, but I love <laughs> Salma Hayek. Oh, I love too. her. She's great. And I, like I said in my review, which will be forthcoming, 
all of the women in these movies so far have been like younger than Mike and hot. And not that Selma Hayek isn't a beautiful woman. She absolutely is. And she does not look her age, which is 56. But that is part of the fantasy of the actual presumed like target audience of this is to be, you don't look at Cody Horn in that first one and you're like, yeah, I aspire to be her. She's young and she's hot and she's like funny and cool, but she's someone that I can never be because you can't turn back the clock. Whereas you, the target audience of this movie could be like an older woman with like, you know, all of this money. And therefore there's like a power fantasy element of it too, with her relationship with Mike that I, I am like, Oh, I see that they're actually taking feedback and trying to like incorporate what women want to see. Not that I presume to speak for women, but you know, I don't disagree with you, but I think magic Mike XXL already made that corrective where like the love interest of Mike's, is kind of like a nothing character who just kind of pops in and out of his life because it's not why people are there. Right, but Big Dick Richie gets with Andy McDowell. Well, you already completed my thought. Oh, sorry. <laughs> well, that's because we complete each other's sandwiches. sandwiches. <laughs> that was a very like uh, <laughs> that was a very sexy like power exchange they were having in that mansion. Like the way he seduces her is like very intellectually stimulating. On top of just being hot. I guess that's true. But it's not the whole movie, which this yeah. sounds like it's a more extended version of that. Um, and yeah. maybe a little different because you know, there's some like wealth porn stuff in this one from I can tell from the trailers. Yeah, and they go to London. Yeah. <laughs> Magic Mike goes international. You know, the that's... sexiest city on earth. The sexiest <laughs> really city on earth. <laughs> well, you know, it gives a lot of opportunities for like rainy, wet shirt declarations. It might be the moistest city on Earth. Yeah, sure. I'll, we can go with that. I'll forewarn you, the boys are not in this movie. They have a cameo, but they are not in the plot. Matt Bomer and um, Big Dick Ritchie and Adam Rodriguez, they're all like on a Zoom screen. Is Kevin Nash in there? Yes, and Kevin Nash, but He's I don't down know under his the window. name. Yeah, I'm sorry. I I did look him up finally, and it makes sense to me that you would like know him because he's like a wrestler. He's a wrestler, yeah. Watching him quote unquote Vogue in the last one was very funny for me because I don't didn't know who he was and had no connection to him. He didn't his name didn't stick in my mind, but it makes perfect sense to me that like he would be someone you would know based on like what you watch and enjoy. I don't know. I'm excited to see this. The reviews have been very mixed, which for me always makes a movie more exciting. I'm just, I, it, that's shocking to me because this this one is so fun and there's a precocious or there's a daughter in this who's just shy of precocious who ends up being one of the best parts about it. Her Salma Hayek's like adopted daughter who's just so like frustrated and flustered with the whole thing. And it could be cloying, but it manages to not do that. What I'm looking at is a 45% on Rotten Tomatoes oh. and a 51 on Metacritic shameful <laughs> i think a lot of the problem is people are going in being like this isn't magic mike xxl almost like i want more of what i liked about the last one which i'm glad that these three movies are not the same thing like the first one has all that like dreary economic you know pressure yeah like, pushing mike's spirits low and like he reluctantly you know continues his the one thing he's magically great at and then the second one is this fun like boy band road trip and then this one sounds like a whole different thing. And I've heard it compared a lot to like 
old-fashioned like screwball comedies from like the studio era <laughs> i wouldn't go that far <laughs> but yeah i know I, i'm i'm excited to see it take a new tact like i don't need a sequel to be the exact same thing as the movie before it that's boring yeah you're not a star wars fan no and if i was i would complain no matter what it they that's did that's true <laughs> yeah i haven't seen any of these movies so i'm excited for uh. this one to finally be out on streaming and then i can just watch all of them oh it's gonna be a wild ride if you binge them it's gonna be a, i know oh, it sounds like it night. will be you've been indulging a lot of like softcore erotica lately i think these qualify in the same kind of like romance sphere oh and this is the sexiest one yeah i think it'll be just like perfect viewing for me i just yeah i don't know why i've put it off in the um the Alamo Draft House, you know, they do their uh, video collage sort of pre-shows. And so for this one, they included like all of Channing Tatum's dancing history that they had footage of, starting with him like as a stripper in Miami and then like the Step Up movies and then Magic Mike and then XXL and then a quick detour over to Hail Caesar for his tap dance. Oh, yes. Classic. And then they showed basically the entirety of Mike's pony dance from xxl and they called it the most iconic dance in the film series so far and they were right there are some dance sequences in this one the first one where he first is like seducing salma hayek i've never seen a person's body move like that i didn't know it was possible outside of an olympic stage and then the the last thing i wanted to talk about is uh this week i went to the movies and i saw uh infinity pool okay which, you know, I saw that you saw Brandon and you gave it four stars, if I recall. Yeah. Yeah. Look, objectively, it's a good movie. It's beautifully photographed. It's thoughtfully composed. It's perfectly edited. It's magnificently acted. And I just was left so cold by it. You're not the first person I've heard this from. And that's why I picked today's topic as well. I'm so excited to talk about them in conjunction with each other, to be honest. Okay. But yeah, where I was like, I don't, I don't feel anything like it's shot like movies that I like, you know, all of the performances are spot on. Let me ask you this. Did you not find it funny or did you recognize the humor and just the jokes didn't land? I thought that parts of it were funny. Uh, I thought that some of the jokes were very funny. I also had a different interpretation of like the relationships than you did. Okay. Insofar as you mentioned in the movie or in your review that you felt like they were doing this specifically to um, John Foster. James Foster. James Foster. How could Foster. you forget his name is James? That's like half the oh, dialogue. Oh, Yeah, I'm sorry. James you Foster. little baby. <laughs> I, I honestly, it's because every time they said Foster, all I could think about was David Foster Wallace because it's like, <laughs> it feels like the author avatar insert character writer here they gave him the name foster because that's what is attempted to be invoked this heartbreaking staggering genius in some ways even though explicitly no one seems to have enjoyed his book if they read it at all if they read it at all <laughs> once you know what the premise is i kind of had a very specific idea of what i thought the narrative was going to be and it was going to be more existential about like oh Am I real? Am I the real me? And it didn't do that. And I was happy for it. Yeah, I'm glad they didn't go there. And the one time that they do kind of play with that, and I'm trying to skirt around spoilers, is, I think, the best scene in the whole movie. That was when I was most engaged. That was, when I, even though I kind of knew that they were, what the reveal was going to be, that there was going to be this proscenium reveal. 
and it would you know change the tone and the meaning of the scene even though it was a little bit telegraphed that that was going to happen simply because of like how much of the movie was left i still thought it was the most effective scene and the best one but yeah i there are parts of it that i really enjoyed a lot of it was very funny it just didn't it didn't connect with me at all. And even there's only like one real moment of body horror to me that was gross. I mean, obviously this is a film directed by Brandon Cronenberg. He is the son of the king of body horror. I don't think he's like trying to outgross his dad or outdo his dad or even copy right. what his dad did. He obviously is using a lot of the same imagery and ideas, yeah. but to me, this was just like an existential comedy about like writer's block and like being a nepo baby who can't <laughs> get a project off the ground because like right. he wrote this movie in the years after antiviral his his original film which we'll be discussing later and i can imagine the frustration of like having a famous parent and writing all these like film projects that like, none of them get greenlit and just like feeling like such a failure and a coward and like just like a loser. And like, I feel like this movie is like a joke at his own expense in that way. And like the, the writer character goes through this, like learning to accept his place in the world in like the most fucked up cosmic horror kind of way. And like uh, Mia goth tormenting him for like the final hour is just so funny to me. Yeah. Okay. I, I accept your interpretation and I, I, I value it. And I see how that like, made it connect with you in a way that it did not connect with me. I just, it's not a bad movie. It's actually really good. It just, I didn't feel anything. You know what I mean? I just think it's like super ill-timed. Mm. We just had all of these like eat the rich satires come out all at once in the past few months. And this is the last one <laughs> that we know of anyway. Yeah. And also this one was supposed to be the biggest one. And I, I still don't think it was as critical as like triangle of sadness i think that triangle of sadness it was less subtle but it definitely was uh had a clearer message in that lack of subtlety and that's why i think it's good that it's not the only thing it's doing right it's not just a cosmic horror maybe horror comedy about uh these like ultra wealthy people using this vacation town as like a consequence free playground like that is a large amount of what's happening in the movie, but it's not just that. There's also this extra layer about like this like Charlie Kaufman style, like down the rabbit hole writer's block thing. Where like every Charlie Kaufman movie is about like some frustrated creative who can't complete a project and like the frustrations of that leads them to make these ridiculous decisions that get them in these like existential crises that are like beyond anyone's, you know, physical control. And this is to me one of those stories which helps it not just feel like another triangle of sadness or the menu or white Lotus or whatever else. Yeah. I, I didn't set out to think like, yeah, I'm going to compare this to the other ones in this genre. I didn't want to get stuck in that mindset, but it was hard to ignore. And, you know, I feel like if this movie had come out before possessor, it would have made more sense as right. like a writer's block movie. Cause he just had the best success of his career so far during the pandemic with possessor. Uh, so like, I don't know, the timing's just off. Like if it had come out before all yeah. those other films and before he had like a hit, you know, it, the whole thing just would have made more sense. Yeah, I don't disagree. I'm looking forward to rewatching it, especially when that NC-17 cut will eventually come out on streaming. I love that for you. 
<laughs> and and I did tell and I, you know maybe I shouldn't have done this because I shouldn't discourage people from going to the theaters. It's a dying industry. But I was like, yeah, just wait. There'll be a hotter cut out on Shutter in four months. You know. Yeah. If you if you really want to see Alexander Skarsgård's hard cock, you know, you gotta just be a little patient. I think the thing is that the theaters kind of shoot themselves in the foot by not jumping on board with those cuts in a way. Because I feel like people who like this sort of gross stuff want to see that. That's an excellent transition into what I wanted to say next was I watched M. Night Shyamalan's Knock at the Cabin. Oh, oh, tell us everything. Okay. I remember watching this DVD extra for The Happening, which I think is a great film. <laughs> and on the, on the extra, M. Night Shyamalan calls himself Mr. PG-13. And he is on set in this director's chair, setting up for a shot in his first R-rated film, The Happening. And the shot is this person who's isolated themselves in the cabin during this um, global disaster. And these little children knock on the door and he shoots them with a shotgun. I, I might be misremembering this because it's been a few years, but two, I, two I children get right. shot with a shotgun yeah. in the movie. And that's what M. Night Shyamalan is explaining that he's Mr. PG-13 and he's like nervous to try his first R film. Okay. Knock at the cabin all these years later. It's also rated R. And I don't understand why. Like, this is him playing it as mainstream and safe and even like borderline like right-wing Christian, like to the MPAA standards. And maybe there's a couple F-bombs like muttered under people's breaths, but it's hardly noticeable. I wasn't like counting them or anything. But they're definitely like spread out wide throughout the movie. And knowing the MPAA... And listening to Brandon Cronenberg talk about how they had to edit down the NC-17 cut of Infinity Pool for theaters and like part of the review process, they have to have representatives of religious communities in on the talk. So there's like a Catholic and a Protestant priest that like have oh, to approve the like cuts of the movie. Yeah, it's still Hail happening Caesar. in the 2020s. Wow, okay. Yikes. All right, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt your train of thought. Please no, go No, isn't on. that fucking nuts? Oh, the like, yeah. is terrible. And they're not legally binding. It's like the Hayes Code. Like these theaters have just adhered to this. Like they need some standard, I guess, to like signal to people what is age appropriate. But like, it's not a legally binding thing. But these theaters will not run NC-17 films at all. But it's interesting to me because something yeah. like Cinema Rink that is literally unrated is in right. all of these theaters. Like, you'll release something like that, but you won't release something that like explicitly says, hey, here's this super mature content. I'm just getting incredibly resentful as an adult person in the world that there's like still censorship blocks. Uh-huh. Stopping me from seeing like the artist's vision in this, you know, movie that like the people showing up for this artsy body horror are not people looking to get off. <laughs> they just want to watch a, a somewhat racy, provocative movie. It's not like it's not like I'm asking them to screen hardcore pornography, you know? Yeah. Are you sure? You've never asked. Well, <laughs> I'm not expecting it at the AMC. I think some art theaters could play like, you know, Bijou or something and I'd, I'd probably go see it. Yeah. But that's the second time Alexander Skarsgård's dick has been edited out of film in a year. What's wrong with it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, now I have to see this thing. If it's, like, too hot for the movie screens, like, what's going on with that dick? 
because it was also digitally scrubbed out of the Northmen last year for similar MPAA reasons. And I think I've reached a breaking point watching Knock of the Cabin, which is a pretty standard M. Night Shyamalan, like, single location, Twilight Zone episode movie that, like, asks all these provocative questions, but, like, ultimately goes with the most, like, mainstream, center-of-the-aisle response to the situation. I know what to expect from movies from him, and, like, I guess there's not that much else to report. Uh, I don't know if y'all know the premise of the film, but it's like yeah. these uh, doomsday cultists uh, who seemingly met on a line in like a QAnon style message board show up at this cabin, knock on the door and tell this couple with an adopted child that you have to sacrifice someone in your family or the world will end. And uh, it, it kind of becomes a, like a, the box situation where like it takes a while to figure out if it's real, like what are the stakes? Are these people crazy? And then, you know, it would be a pretty boring movie if there's nothing to it. So I will say that there is like something supernatural going on. Yeah. I am convinced the reason that this movie is rated R is that the couple is gay. It's two men. I was going to say, isn't it a gay couple? Isn't that? Yeah. So it seems like it's probably like critical of the Christians. Somewhat. Not really. really? I, well, okay. Here's what I'll say. I think what's, what's interesting about the movie is that after you figure out this puzzle of like, how real is this Christian home invasion thing? Like, are these just like QAnon freaks or is there something really going on outside the cabin? Once that's to the side, the big moral quandaries of the film are like, how much do we owe these people considering that as gay men, like even like the most milquetoast white gay guys in the world, we suffer intense scrutiny discrimination, physical violence, and motherfuckers like the MPAA, you yeah. know, labeling us not safe for children in very literal ways. Like, it's amazing that the word grooming didn't even come up in the movie because that's, like, so relevant to how people talk about, like, the most milquetoast gay shit right now. It's wild. What do we owe these monsters? Like, why not just let the world burn? What do we owe to the rest of the humanity if the rest of the humanity is so fucking cruel to us all day, every day? And, like, that moral quandary is, like, the best water cooler conversation, philosophical back and forth in the movie. Like, the couple's arguments with each other about whether or not it's worthwhile for them to sacrifice themselves for the rest of the planet. I find that fascinating and is, like, the most commendable and recommendable thing about the film. But it also just made me steam about the rating the whole time. So it's just like, I don't see why this is rated R. Other than the MPAA is still intensely homophobic and basically right-wing Christian, and they're guiding in a very real, literal way who can see what content on a mass scale. And, like, this is continuing from when I was a kid, and, like, Blockbuster censoring films or not carrying certain films, or Walmart doing Mm -hmm. the same. And, you know, living outside of the city in Chalmette, that had a very real consequence and what media i could access you know and yeah. yeah i've just been mad about this for a very long time and i guess it bubbles to the surface sometimes in ways that like i don't know i was thinking about that metatextual aspect of the movie maybe even more than some of the like philosophical stuff in the movie itself because otherwise it's a pretty standard Shyamalan picture yeah and not to bring up siskel and ebert yet again but i'm going to they expressed so much excitement when the nc-17 was created because they were like, yes, finally we'll be able to like have an actual adults only rating that doesn't just mean X rated. It's not just pornography. 
And that was decades ago. And the only real consequence is that, yes, these theaters will still not carry NC-17 films. It's a valid MPAA rating. But you're, and it's absolutely true because the one thing that helped so many of those local mom and pop video stores hang on for as long as they could and as long as they did was that they did have those back booths where you could go and you could, you know, rent pornography. And that kept them in business. And it's eventually what drove Blockbuster out of business was their inability to recognize that, like, just because the segment of our society that is loudest about maintaining puritanical standards, that does not mean that they are actually the largest part of our society. Yeah, I guess it's just time to get like weird and loud. And I guess the thing about it is that these people are also dangerous. So we got to get weird, loud, and dangerous, right? We are loud, gay, and dangerous. Well, I got two other cheesy thrillers. One, I also saw in the theater this week, and I really liked it. I thought it was better than Knock at the Cabin. I actually liked it better than the movie it's a sequel to as well, which is Missing. Wait, Missing's a sequel? Because I saw this trailer before Megan. It is a spinoff sequel of Searching with John Cho a few years ago. Oh, really? Okay. But All right. they're only tangentially related. It's almost like an anthology thing where like, there's some news footage from the conclusion of that movie. Um, that is then regurgitated as true crime reenactments. Okay. Basically, these are screen life films. So these are like filmed entirely through the POV of a laptop screen. Favorite. Like Unfriended. I love Unfriended. Uh, and yeah, it was great. In 2018, I hated Searching, though, because it cleaned up the Unfriended genre. Like it took all the supernatural, like ghosts in the computer stuff, and it made it more palatable for like suburbanites. And, like, the whole movie is this guy, played by John Cho, whose, like, daughter is missing, and he keeps thinking that she's gotten into these, like, really nefarious things, like, like she's gotten into drugs, or she's gotten into sex work, or, like, she was dealing with these, like, black market freaks or something. Um, and he keeps getting reassured, like, every few scenes that, like, you know, actually, she's a good kid, and she's got, like, her head above water, and, like, you know, he keeps, like, pulling back and be like, actually, everything's fine. He keeps pulling out, like, the safety net. And, like, that's not why I watch these internet thrillers. I want them to make the internet scary and um, also kind of unknowable. Like, there's, like, an eeriness and an uncanniness to, like, how computers work <laughs> to most people, unless you're, like, a tech guy. You don't really know all of the ins and outs of it. And I think there's a lot of ambiguity in there that makes for, like, great cinema. And I really felt like searching kind of zapped all that out of it. The new one flips it so it's... um. Storm Reed, who's a teenage actor who I saw in Euphoria, and she's been in a few other things. She is investigating her mother's disappearance while she's in Columbia. Like, her mother goes on vacation to Columbia and just doesn't come back to California. Storm Reed gets on her little laptop surveillance station and starts hacking into email accounts, perusing people's social media and their search histories, using, like, public cams and people's ring cameras... And, like, this is all publicly accessible technology that she's using to track this woman down from another country. And it does the same thing as searching, where, like, on some basic level, it is, like, a very palatable mainstream version of these, like, you know, basically I like the supernatural horror ones the most, but these, like, screen life horror movies. And that's, like, the text of the film is, like, isn't it wonderful that she can use all this internet stuff to... I see where this is going. 
access her mother from a different location. <laughs> but like the subtext of that is, isn't it fucking terrifying how much of a surveillance state we're already living yep. in and how like deeply involved in our lives this technology already is and we just casually accept it because it's convenient? And then on top of that, there's all this like commentary about turning real-life tragedy into online content where like people are sort of digesting and debating her mother's disappearance as like passive entertainment yeah. online. Oh, There's interesting. A, okay. A lot that in like online true crime stuff. I remember several years ago, well, not several years ago, God, I'm not going to date myself like that, but a few years ago, <laughs> I listed an American murderer uh, documentary as one of my top 10 or 15 of that year. And it wasn't because I thought it was actually a very fascinating movie, but I really wanted to delve into like the fact that for decades and decades like you turn on 2020 and they're talking about a person who went missing or a person who got murdered and they have maybe like maximum five to ten minutes of usable footage of this person for this television program you know there's shots of them at their wedding there's like video of them at like birthday parties and then that's it but now part of that like the surveillance state that we're living in is also a self-surveillance state yes nobody's forcing anyone to put up ring cameras at their houses and nobody should still be doing it at this point knowing that amazon shares that data with police without warrants like they don't require the police to get a warrant for that kind of like video we are all living in like a surveillance state that's at least partially like of our own making for the sake of the convenience, which is exactly what you're talking about, Brandon. And then that feeds into this true crime cycle where I remember the first one that I saw is Don't Fuck With Cats. That was one of the first like documentaries that was about like people being keyboard detectives. Yeah. yeah. And even though it was a happy ending in the sense that they caught the people. I also had no respect for anyone involved with the investigation because they were all like, you know, even though I, in theory, am 100% behind like civilian investigation, these people seem like the worst people you could imagine having to try and find you. Just my coworkers casually talking about the details of like, some college student who was murdered or like this guy definitely did it or like that yeah. person's lying as like that was like the tv show they all watched last night and then me knowing that they don't actually watch long form fictional content anymore like they mostly just watch tiktoks oh my God. and digest these like news stories and like that is just like the preferred version of entertainment these days and like i find it really gross <laughs> I, i've never gotten it our nation is unwell yeah. Well, Missing is a much trashier, twistier, dumber movie than Searching. And I think, therefore, it is a better screen life movie. And I highly recommend watching it. <laughs> it's a much meaner film than the uh, the one before it. And I'm going to bring up an even dumber movie that's not good at all right now. But uh, it'll become apparent why in a second. But I watched this movie called Lost Junction from 2003. It is a very bad kind of neo-noir um, set in the American South. It includes a road trip to New Orleans in the middle of it. Um, and it stars Nev Campbell oh. <laughs> doing kind of like a half-speed Kristen Chenoweth impersonation. Like She's got the worst Southern drawl you've ever heard in this oh film. God. And I thought, you know, Nev Campbell in the South, I thought this was going to be a knockoff Wild Things. Right. 
But what it actually is, is a knockoff Crazy in Alabama, the uh, Melanie Griffith movie. I don't know if y'all know that film, but I, I saw that a few times that. as a kid. So in Crazy in Alabama, Melanie Griffith has her like husband's head in a hat bag that she like carries around. Uh, and in this one, Nev Campbell has her dead husband in the trunk of a car. And uh, she's like chipper, even though she's playing like the femme fatale who lures this hitchhiker into her little crime world. She's like very sweet. And she killed an abusive man for good reasons uh, and just sort of like acts like nothing's wrong. And it's a very bad movie, but I just kind of wanted you to know that it exists. <laughs> I feel like okay. I have seen this very, very, very long time ago. It's the kind of like disposable thriller that gives a big emotional monologue to Jake Busey. Like Jake oh. Busey gets like minutes on end to give like a big emotional like stop the plot speech. Ooh. It's that kind of a bad movie. Yeah, it was a, all right. I'm still on board. <laughs> I'm still going to check it down. I found it on a DVD at a thrift store. And, like, it's not streaming anywhere. I'm sure it's just, like, lurking on YouTube or something. I'm shocked it's not on Tubi. It's, like, prime Tubi content. Uh, but anyway, if you want to see Nev Campbell do, like, the worst Southern accent you've ever heard. And I do. I think it's recommendable for that. What if you could find it all at the tip of a needle? Here at the Lucas Clinic, we strive to bring you closer to celebrity than ever before. With samples drawn directly from the source, you can be connected in ways you never imagined. Well, his name has already been evoked as the premier body horror Nepo baby. But uh, I was thinking a lot about Brandon Cronenberg after watching Infinity Pool. and. What I kept seeing was kind of repeats of what Boober was saying about Infinity Pool was like a lot of people on Twitter just saying he doesn't have the juice, the sauce. A squelching. Yeah, he doesn't have the squelch like his father does. And I need to just get off Twitter in general. Like it just makes me second guess myself. And I'm like, well, I liked both of his movies. I guess some got bad taste, which, you know, happened to me last year with uh, Men and, and uh, Triangle of Sadness as well. Like... The more cynical Emperor with No Clothes takes are the ones that like will come across your timeline more often than stuff you actually agree with. And with Brandon Cronenberg, it was kind of driving me nuts. Like, I think he makes interesting sci-fi horror satires. And I've enjoyed, up until this point, all three of his movies. Uh, the most recent of which was the one we watched for this episode, uh, Antiviral from 2012. It was his debut. Personally, I think it's the least of his films, but it has mm. a lot of great ideas, great imagery. I think it's the one you could probably pin the most of, like, he's just repeating his dad's triumphs to. Uh, there are a couple images in here that feel straight out of a classic David Cronenberg mm. film. But he's a younger guy. I think he's like, in his early 30s when he made this. And I think he's only gotten better since. And I still think this is a great film as a debut. If you didn't know this who is made a really it. really good first Yeah, film. Yeah, it's shocking because uh, while watching it, because I had just seen Infinity Pool, which is in every way a much more expensive movie, and you see every cent of it. Yes. This movie, it's not cheap, but it's very clearly inexpensively made. And I thought it was so, so much more engaging personally. It's smartly done. Like the way they use the budget, uh, everything is shot in these like clinical spaces. So everything's like really whited out. And usually movies go the other way where like you can create an infinite void by just 
putting blackout curtains everywhere and like covering everything in like black felt. You know, like that like under the skin style, like endless yeah. voids that like Scarlett Johansson descends in the waters into. That's usually the way people go, but in this one, a lot of the movie is set in these like Apple store looking environments that look high end and expensive, but are actually like pretty cheaply constructed. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the imagery that is like futuristic, because it is set in the near future, is just playing out on television screens in the background. And they shot these like sort of fake newsreel footage, like CNN style, of a few future celebrities um, that are like sort of constantly looping in the background. And that gives it a futuristic feel on a pretty cheap budget um, to the point where like the celebrities in the film, like the, the famous women that people idolize are kind of these like background characters that don't really have a lot of on-screen dialogue. And they're just used as like background imagery instead of like real people, which both yeah. accentuates the themes of the film, which are like celebrity obsession for the most part. And then also boosts the budget which is obviously pretty low because even though he is a Nepo baby, he's like first time out of film school kid. And David Cronenberg has problems enough getting his own fucking movies made with a reasonable budget. Like Crimes of the Future was not an extravagant production either. So yeah, I I think this is a very impressive debut and I don't want to hear any more negativity about Brandon Cronenberg just not having anything interesting to do or say. I guess we're we're done here. I was going to say, like, (laughs) I really loved Possessor, so I'm just like, people just say that. I don't know. People are just upset that their dad isn't Cronenberg. Yeah, I mean, if my dad was the body horror guy, uh, I would probably grow up with an interest in body horror as well, and it probably would have yeah. an effect on my life and work. You know, can't fault the guy for that. Yeah. Let's uh, let's shrink back down to talking about one movie at a time. Uh, Antiviral, like I said, came out about a decade ago. It stars Caleb Landry Jones, who is very young in this. He's so good, too. He's so good in this movie. This is like post X Men First Class and like pre Get Out, right? Yeah. And he's really effectively playing someone who both looks like they're on the verge of death and like you know you cannot trust them. He is supposedly relatively healthy at the start of the film um, we learned that he is injecting illness into his body and has been doing it before we meet him but even at the start where he's like at his physical peak he looks like a sickly victorian child and there's like an un- open window that's bringing in a draft yeah he he looks like someone fear-mongering about gingers yes yeah <laughs> he looks like propaganda he works at a clinic that Looks like a split between an Apple store and like a dermatologist's office. You kind of get the sense that they're doing plastic surgery to make people look more like their favorite celebrities. But uh, once you get into a room with Caleb Landry Jones and a potential client, it becomes more of like a car sale situation. Like he's selling someone illness. And basically the near future celebrity commodity is not keepsakes it's not people buying bath water off of uh only fans it's people buying a cold or a flu or yeah. herpes it's celebrities selling their infections to a clinic so that you can feel closer to your favorite star knowing that you got you know timothy chalamet's strand of covid and you can feel closer to him because you've shared the same virus this was a fascinating concept yeah. 
conceptually, this is amazing. And I think it has a lot to say legitimately. Like, I, I think you could probably pass it off as like a pretty empty satire. But like, I was sitting there watching this news footage in the background zoom in on like someone's cold they had last week or like they discussed the main celebrity's genitals a lot like apparently she doesn't have a vulva or at least that's the rumor i don't know why that would require special underwear but people are very into the idea of her underwear being like modified because of her vulva situation and like there's another zoom in on a celebrity's like anal canal yes on like a cnn broadcast and i was just thinking watching that like there are a lot of celebrities that i know a lot about their personal lives like Chrissy Teigen, I think, is a good example. Like, I know a lot about her. I've never watched anything she's created or purposefully sought her out. Directly engaged with it at all. No, it's just like osmosis. Yeah. Like, this just reported on people's personal lives. I know that the one of the Try Guys had an affair last year. I don't know what the fuck a Try Guy is. Yeah. <laughs> like, why, why is this information, this, like, personal, private life information, something that's, like, being blown up and, like, I don't want to say shoved down my throat, but it kind of is. Yeah, the way that celebrity adoration works in the modern era and the way that, like, it's so fascinating that he was already noticing 10 years ago because 10 years before that, it was was completely different, too, because it was very different in the 90s where it was still very invasive, but you only were exposed to that knowledge when you were getting your groceries in the grocery store know, like, in like public spaces like i don't know a laundromat like yeah there's something about the way that social media has made these stars more accessible and therefore made it so that they have to engage with the public more and they have to actively encourage parasocial relationships with them among their fans, even though that like puts them in danger and makes it so that we might as well be looking up their assholes at points. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was very shocked by how much I really enjoyed and engaged with this on the level of just its premise that this woman who her name is Aria Noble, which makes me think she's supposed to be like Ariana Grande. I don't know why that stuck in my head, but every time they said her name and it came up in the captions, it made me think that she was supposed to be like, you know, a a mockery of everyone's obsession with Ariana Grande at that point in time. I don't know. I was just thinking like they were just coming up with like generic famous people names. Yeah. And they they were pretty good, too, with a lot of them. I was thinking of of Ariola when I heard her name, but I don't know if that (laughs) was intentional or not. (laughs) Okay, I I hear what you're saying that the premise is like very smart and like has a lot to explore. And I think that might be the downfall of a movie in a certain way. Like once the premise is established and you see him sneaking these illnesses out of the building in his own blood and then going home to synthesize them and then sell them on the black market outside of the company. Once we leave the clinic, I think all the movie really has to do is to further detail the world. And there's like a novel's worth of like world building to explore here. Like, yeah, he goes to a butcher shop and they're selling um, modified meat, like lab grown meat developed from these virus samples. You know, we get a lot of detail about what the machine does, not how it does it, but like the machine that like synthesizes the virus, 
makes it non-contagious so that they can like control the distribution of it and then gives it a face based on like its DNA so that people feel like relatable to it. So it, like synthesizes like an AI rendering of a face so that they can sell each strand of a virus as its own unique personality. And then eventually we meet Malcolm McDowell who is like a major player in these like science lab experiments. Uh, he has my favorite line in the movie uh, where he's like, I'm afraid you've become involved in something sinister, Yeah, which yeah. is fucking ridiculous. Uh, and there's a lot of good, like jokey parts like that. There's a lot of like noir style sleuthing in this like near future dystopia that like some of it was more tense than other scenes. Like I, I didn't really care about the rival black market people that much. Uh, even though those sort of back and forths keep repeating, but um, yeah, the premise and the world building and like him just sort of like going out and about and detailing how this would work in the future, all great. It does lack a little tension for me at some points, and I was kind of just waiting for it to come to a conclusion. And I think at the conclusion is where you see the imagery that's most like his father's work, and kind of like yeah. probably not for the best that he like evoked those um, exposed muscle constructions that you would see in like a video drone. Yeah. For me, it happens earlier on when he's at the butcher shop and he's like, do you want to see my meat garden or whatever it is? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That is the, the image that I was like, oh, this is the most sort of Cronenberg-y thing in it uh, until the end. But I still like those, uh, that still felt separate and different enough when you see it early on that I was like, this is very much like his father's work, but it's creepy and gross in its own way. And what I will say is like, I don't think that the body horror in this movie was particularly nauseating to me. Like I thought it was very well done and I really like liked it. But if you are a person who is sensitive about needles, this movie is not for you. No, not at uh, all. There's a needle jabbed into a person's gum. That fucked me up more than anything else, like image wise. So yeah. That one, like it messed me up, but it was also weird because it's like, I don't, have dental anxiety in any way shape or form like i'm like rarity in that i have all other sorts of medical anxiety but that's like the one i don't so for that to freak me out i was like ah like my head it's like i know this happens i get things shoved into my arms but oh surgical like clinical surgical stuff always freaks me out in movies it's like my most easy go-to if i actually want to be like unnerved especially dental stuff though i think that movie the dentist from the 90s like is the most scared i've ever been when i was a kid and saw that i was like too young mm. and yeah that scene that image brought me right back to like feeling like 10 years old late night watching the most fucked up horror movie i'd ever seen in my life like <laughs> i feel like this is a little bit of a chicken or egg situation <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah maybe so here's what i'll say this movie is very solid it has some like wavering in the middle but i think it's all something you could pass off as just like a young creative with a lot of ideas and not really sure what to do with them all and i think his other movies have done a good job in the years since where he had like a solid decade after this one came out to like work on other stuff you know i think his ideas have become more solidified without going overboard in over explaining everything like as much as we were talking about an infinity pool the like eat the rich stuff and the writer's block anxiety and like the guilt of being wealthy. I think there's actually more going on in that film than I'm even giving it credit for by like oversimplifying it in that way. 
And like I think there is some stuff in it that's like not easily explained or like categorized. Uh whereas I think this one is pretty easily contained by its premise. Yes, but I feel like that constraint gives it it keeps it from going to a place where you can't follow. It fences it in a little in a way that I found kind of positive. But I guess I'm, I guess I really like the that. transcendence of uh, the like psychedelic freakout sequences in Infinity Pool and Possessor. Like the sort of ambiguity of how this stuff works and like the sort of like phantasmic other world it has to go there to like justify it you know like when, when it turns into like a kaleidoscope for 10 minutes i'm like yes this is cinema yeah and and i, I don't think i stated this yet but i have not seen possessor so i can't oh, okay. i can't speak to that i've only seen infinity pool and antiviral i was actually hoping i could watch all three over the course of three days and be ready for this discussion in that way but uh, unfortunately I, life uh, had other I would say Possessor is his best work to date. Really? Okay. Yeah. So good. <laughs> I liked Antiviral more than Infinity Pool. And again, we're talking about semantics here, and there's no such thing as like an objective definition, really and truly. But I would say that Infinity Pool is a quote unquote better movie that did not connect with me, whereas Antiviral is a less impressive movie that still like I connected with it in a way that I did not connect with Infinity Pool. This really kept my attention. So one of the most engaging parts of this movie and like always like when you watch first movies and like, oh God, so much of it is just how terrible they look. And this movie looks really good. Like I like the white background so you can catch the blood. I like the way things are framed and to me like the imagery just kept going back to me of that movie like little joe because it's kind of the same color palette but yeah. this was like a more interesting maybe because it's grosser to me well yeah like little joe's like a horror movie in title yeah. only like there is like a plant that is you know, sort of taking over the world through mind control in that film. But that makes it sound like a much more exciting genre picture than it actually is. Yeah. Like a lot of it's just sort of like existential, quiet drama day to day in this like future world. It's more like following her, trying to figure out whether or not she's going crazy. Yeah. There's this one, you know, we know he's going crazy because he's dying and he is like working in this industry that he seems simultaneously like held and repulsed by and also absolutely drawn to i think there's some smart commentary in there too about how like whether or not you're a sex worker like we all kind of sell our bodies for work yes yeah like yeah work kind of like just drags you down physically and in his it's an accelerated thing because he's like actually bringing illness directly into his bloodstream just thinking like you know this will work out my immune system will handle it yeah yeah i also am so glad that this came out so long before now because the idea of virus made in a lab that could have come from China like yeah. Someone, yeah. I was like oh no I'm so glad this was made in 2015 and not last year <laughs> I did laugh at the explanation that she got the, the actress got the killer virus that like really takes Caleb Andrew Jones down she got that um, in China while quote unquote Looking at orphans. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Something about the ambiguity of that language is very funny to me. Like, was she adopting them? Was she just 
touring and looking at them. I don't understand. It sounded like a trip to the zoo, uh, which I'm sure was like part of the satire. One of my favorite like minor parts of the movie is the way that uh, when he's trying to figure out when that particular virus was like last taken out of the virus library. I mean, it's not exactly that, but you know what I mean? And she's like, oh, well, we had Hannah's right after Paris honeymoon and before sweet memories or something like that. The way that like the celebrity's life is completely broken down into narrative chapters. Like it's, you know, Mm -hmm. it's not common for us to sympathize with celebrities unless they're getting like the full on Britney treatment these days. Like most people are envious of fame, but like wanting to be famous is like the most short sighted wish that a person could ever have. Like, Actually, being famous is awful. You do reap the benefits of a lot of things, but like the the sacrifices like that you make and the pieces of yourself that you lose and the lack of privacy that you end up with is not something that I would that I envy about celebrity status at all. And the way that her entire life is not just broken down, but possibly like charted out in advance as narrative segments for this essentially this like brand deal that she's doing is really insidious and it really got under my skin under my gum skin (laughs) yeah i think you know the thing about his work versus his dad's is he doesn't quite go straight for the gut punch like body horror it's like the concept of the body horror to urban extreme instead of like watching somebody's body like stretch and fall apart all the time and grow new parts it's like hey we're selling this like really disgusting thing to you or like we are watching you and inside you you know if you're gonna get compare him to his dad like he's not taking it in the same direction because it does feel more like in the mind sort of body horror like we're thinking about it a way that terrifies us more than looking at it being grossed out i was a little surprised to learn that he was in his 40s there's so much interaction with blood in both this movie and Infinity Pool that I would have thought he was younger than us because he does not treat people interacting with blood in the way that I would assume a director who lived through the AIDS crisis and could remember the AIDS crisis would. I mean, he's not that much older than us. Like, we were pretty young during the yeah. AIDS crisis. I remember it very clearly. This actually came up in conversation in our friend group the other day is that Kat and I remember like, you know, the names being read and the number of AIDS deaths being read on the news and how omnipresent like the threat of AIDS was to us, you know, based on what we saw in the news when we were children. Whereas like, you know, I had two friends who just turned 31 uh, since the year started. Neither of them think of the AIDS crisis in the same way. And what led to this conversation actually was a discussion about condom usage and how they are much more open to not. Whereas Kat and I, who grew up under like a constant threat of the fear of contracting HIV from unprotected sex and, you know, the urban legends about needles and payphones and all this other stuff that like, we are much more concerned about maintaining our bodily health in certain ways that our younger friends who were not born or were only just being born at the time that we were able to be conscious of how bad it was 
like the difference in those opinions. So- well, they're also armed with prep and like uh, HIV status change is not like a death sentence the way it used yeah, to be. It's not the uh, yeah, I, I'm not trying to pretend like it's the only reason or, or, or d- reduce it to that. But these gentlemen, they also spent the first like 25 years of their life without prep existing too. Yeah. Fair it was not it was not treated the same as the national crisis and there was not as much honestly fear-mongering about it for them as there was for me and cat yeah and there's something very casual about the way that like blood is just exchanged in both of these movies between people who do not know each other mm-hmm. that was it definitely it felt like it was made by someone who who knew of the AIDS crisis only as a theoretical which does not seem to have ended up being the case. I wonder how much of that AIDS awareness is like a local thing, because I remember the most I ever thought about it was when I lived in Baton Rouge, and there was like huge numbers of infection cases there, mostly from needle drugs. Yeah, that is true, actually. That is possible. Yeah, in the 2000s, that like really was like on my mind a lot there, more than it ever has been, you know, other than like having older friends who like, really lost like an entire generation of like their family and their like really close friends through that i am younger than both of you and yeah for me i'm just like yeah it's still a big deal and other things you can catch which is why i'm like oh yeah i i'm always shocked when someone's like yeah i'm on prep so i never wear a condom it's like what that's not it's not like that's that's not the only thing you can catch out there that's like uh, people like um, being okay, like going to work and be like, oh, it's okay. I'm, I'm sick, but I don't have COVID. It's like yes. there's other stuff you could oh give God. me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't worry. It's just the flu. I mean, and it's kind of impossible not to think of AIDS watching this. I don't think yeah. this is like a movie about AIDS in particular, but like. No, I, I agree. If this were a movie that was supposed to be about AIDS, it really didn't do a very good job. So yeah. I, yeah. yeah. Are there any gay people in this movie? Not that oh, like only gay people can get by. AIDS, but who is the well, not actor, actress, the celebrity, because they were talking about how she got herpes from her affair with that other like celebrity woman. Mm, okay, uh, there is like a scene of like brief homoeroticism where like he's selling the herpes to the potential client, and he's like, it would be like if she kissed you right here. They both yeah. get very breathy and close uh, during that encounter. That was like definitely sexually charged. But it was more about their shared obsession with the celebrity. And it feels like, you know, that obsession on a culture-wide place has taken the place of, like, drugs and sex in people's daily lives. I also really enjoyed the Talking Head News interview with the person who ran the Lucas Clinic that he worked at, where, you know, there's this discussion of, like, celebrity worthiness, because that's something that we do talk about a lot. And, you know, this was not during the initial rise of that but this movie was made maybe like what three or four years after the kardashians got really famous and it was a constant part of the discussion as to whether or not they actually deserved to be talked about as much as they did because really all they did was just you know create scandal and then do brand deals which is basically what the people in this movie are doing and the you know the head of the clinic is like oh if a person is a celebrity they deserve to be a celebrity like it's completely circular logic but that is often how that goes down in real life as well i mean he had a point though where he says it's a collaboration it's like you know the audience makes them a celebrity uh so it's not like something they're entirely doing on their own 
yes and no, especially when we're talking about like real life. Like we were just talking about how we cannot get away from celebrity news about people <laughs> we we have no reason to know about or think about or care about. Yeah. So like yes and and on the one hand but also no in the sense that in many ways it is manufactured and forced on us just because we're existing in the world without our consent really. Yeah. Like every single thing I've ever learned against about the Kardashians was against my will. Yeah. Found out I was supposed to know what a Jojo Siwa last, was last year, and I shut my computer and read a book. I insulate myself from a lot of that. So when like these things drop, I'm like, huh, I'm not going to look that up. That is present in this movie, too, because, you know, as you were saying, Allie, a lot of that stuff we would absorb if we had to, you know, back in the day through, like, I was thinking through the supermarket stand, but you mentioned, like, laundromats, and, like, that is something that's constantly present is there's always a TV on everywhere you go now, every bar, every restaurant, every laundromat. And that's what's happening in this movie. So much so that like, we are never told anything directly about Aria Noble, not even a little bit, but we know yeah. everything about her health just from like people observing that news. My favorite like throwaway joke, or one of my favorites anyway, was uh, the Aria Noble news in the background. And you were talking about that like corporate speak about like celebrityhood. They say, like, you know, find out the latest about the Arya Noble ordeal. And then on the little scrolling Chiron below that, it says, like, coming up next, the top 12 ordeals of last year. <laughs> Which, uh, just like turning the word ordeal as if it's like, like you said earlier, like episodes in their lives become episodes of content. And like, uh, they're called ordeals in this future world. So, like, find out the latest in the new ordeal from Arya Noble and then tune in next hour to see the countdown of the best ordeals from last year. Uh, yeah. I found that very funny. Well, and, and part of it is like, there is so much of our brains that is taken up with this knowledge about celebrity, either because there are people that I know who do watch reality television. You know, they watch things about real housewives. So these people are like characters that they know. And like, if they talk to somebody else, who also watches the show, they can be like, oh, so-and-so was such a, you know, a, a mad dog last week or whatever. But it's almost like this is being made manifest in this movie because there are people that we all know who willingly allow parts of their brain space to be taken up with what is the most meaningless shit on earth in the same way that the people in this movie are allowing their physical bodies to become hosts to this celebrity quote-unquote information in a way again entirely of their will and it's grotesque like it's a, it's a grotesque it is a physicalization of what we allow celebrity culture to do to our minds made manifest on our bodies to show us like oh this actually is a disgusting thing i also like that it's implied that like this is the economy like the only people we see at work are either selling celebrity flesh or celebrity viruses or are handlers of celebrities. Like, Yeah. I want to backtrack something I said earlier where, like, I said that the mystery and, like, the noir investigation isn't as compelling as the world building. I do think that the mystery of his motivation and kind of Malcolm McDowell needling him a little bit about whether he's just like a fan like everybody else or if he's like actually got this like higher minded participation in this culture or even if malcolm mcdowell is like kidding himself and he's just a fan i found that like back and forth mystery of like caleb landry jones 
motivations I found really compelling. And I like the the final image of the film really digs on that in like a really creepy way. Um, yeah. I, I found that like to be the, the better mystery is like, why is he so obsessed and involved? Like, is he yeah. actually obsessed with the celebrity or is that just part of his sales pitch? Or is he digging into this world of black market trade just to find the source of this illness that's killing him? Or is he just trying to get closer to the actress, which he eventually does? I don't know. I found that to be like probably a better mystery than actually like investigating who's behind what. Like, I, I didn't really care about the plot as much as I cared about his character and the world he was living in. And I guess that's what I think is better in Possessor and Infinity Pool is they've doubled down on that. Like, they set up a premise mm -hmm. that's like pretty clearly set in the future that like um, has a big like what if sci fi question, you know, like. Sci-fi and it's like bare bones is like, what if blank, then what? This one does that and then goes in a more plotty direction where I feel like Infinity Pool and Possessor instead like dig into the psychology of their protagonists instead of actually trying to answer any questions about the mechanics of the world. Um, and that I guess that's more what I'm compelled by. To the point where you literally go inside their brains and just see swirls of color and like trippy shit <laughs> sometimes. I, I find yeah. that compelling as well. So this is first feature, like there are movies that come out that are about this level from people who've been making movies for years and years and get tons of funding. So I'm just like, I don't know. I just hearing all the like Nepo baby hate, I'm just like, well, can't we just hate the ones that aren't good at what they do? <laughs> well, I think it's like worth acknowledging that like the people who have the opportunity to make art are the yeah. ones who can get their foot in the door, which usually oh, means yeah. that it's a playground for the wealthy. I think that's worth acknowledging, it but is. like, once you get the foot in the door, what you do with that opportunity, there's a huge disparity in the outcome. Yeah, exactly. Like, if we're going to be hating, like, can we at least acknowledge when people are, like, legitimately good at things? He's good filmmaker. This is more of a note for myself than for anybody else, but, like, what I need to remind myself of when I hear people being really cynical about these, like, horror movies I like, or these movies with, like, kind of on-the-surface premises that are, like, unsubtle. I need to remind myself that, like, the same cynics on Twitter, the movies that they like and promote are ones that I hate. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I've heard these same people go to bat for Top Gun Maverick or uh -huh. Avatar or, like, The Fablemans last year or Tar, and I didn't like any of those movies. Why the fuck do I care what they don't like? I don't know why I let it get to me. Uh, well, we've already mentioned this, but Swamplix is the only right opinion. And the last film blog. I feel like I've gotten better at doing this in certain ways since 2015. I would hope I have. I mean, it's been a long time since we started. But something I've lost is just not caring about critical consensus. <laughs> like, I need to let that go again. Yeah. It used to not matter to me that, like, Chappie got bad reviews. I would go see Chappie and I would smile while watching Chappie. I just don't want to hear anyone who had Top Gun Maverick on their top films of last year talk shit about men. <laughs> the Alex Garland film. You can talk shit about men, the uh, gender, all you want. Me also co-signing that specific one, and also um, don't worry, darling. Fair enough. I liked the don't worry, darling. Okay. And um, Magic Mike's Last Dance. Wouldn't it have been great to watch Don't Worry, Darling without knowing all the tabloid back and forth, like Harry Styles and? But that's the thing is, I did. I oh, saw well. it before I heard about any of that. I'm very jealous. Okay, 
Bottom line, Brandon Cronenberg makes interesting movies. You may not like each one as they come out, but, you know, the man's got big concepts, and I don't think he's just echoing his dad's work. He's got his own thing going on, and I, I dig it. Yeah, I, I'm into his, his weirdo messed up stuff. Yeah. And me three. Okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> Motion carries. I've got to watch Possessor. I just wanted to hear the, my echo back in the echo chamber. Uh, so mission accomplished. Uh, <laughs> I'm so glad that we could cube zero that for you. Thank you. <laughs> Next week on the show, we're going to talk about celebrity <laughs> and its destructive power. <laughs> uh, we're talking about Marilyn Monroe movies, partially inspired by Andrew Dominic's awful piece of shit movie, Blonde, that came out last year. That uh, two of my co-hosts in my echo chamber, uh, I believe, enjoyed. So, some light arguing about Andrew Dominic, and then extensive celebration of Marilyn Monroe as a screen presence. Um, yeah, she yeah, yeah. Was very good at what she did. It was so good. Love her. Yeah. And honestly, I went in only knowing her from comedies, and we watched a couple noirs that she was in. Yeah, Niagara. Incredible. You watched that one. It's great. Very good. And I saw an even better one after that. Uh, so yeah, we're gonna talk about two of her more famous comedies. Two of her less famous noirs and the biopic starring Ana de Armas that is Oscar nominated and has been much discussed on the villain of the day, twitter.com. And uh, if you want to read reviews of Infinity Pool, Magic Mike's Last Dance, and all the other new releases we just mentioned, go to swampflix.com where the opinions are correct and verified. My God's in the back of the limousine. My God.